Reconstructionist Radio presents The War Room, where we discuss tactics for strategic Christian living. Mighty Lord, extend your kingdom, be the truth with Good afternoon. Welcome to the War Room. This is Bill Evans, your host. Today I have the pleasure of talking with Pastor Phil Kaiser, pastor of Dominion Covenant Church in Omaha, Nebraska. Uh, pastor Kaiser was referred to me by none other than Bojadar Marinoff, and uh, I, we spoke today on the phone, and providentially I was going to be in his neck of the woods, and so uh, welcome to the War Room, Pastor Kaiser. Thank you very much. Appreciate it. Um, tell us a little bit about uh, yourself. Uh, your, um, you don't have to give your full-blown testimony, but you can tell us what you're, what you're about, what God has called you to, and uh, about uh, your uh, work here in Omaha. Well, I grew up in Africa. My parents were missionaries with the Sudan Interior Mission for uh, 30 years. And uh, I saw the difference between long-term vision missions and the kind of short-term missions that uh, most missionaries engage in. And uh, the, the two areas that my dad worked in uh, and worked in a way that multiplied himself, worked his way out of a job, so to speak, uh, through his uh, training and uh, training others to train others has been phenomenal because uh, when they went out there, there were just a few churches, and now it's more than 95% Christian in those tribes. And it, that started me off on a, on a road of, of the, the impact that a long-term vision can have. Now, I wasn't post-millennial at the time, but I became Reformed, post-millennial, uh, theonomic, and got fired up about... Uh, trying to make some changes in culture. And I figured, hey, I'm not much of a, a big shot, don't have a lot of uh, clout on radio and other areas like that, but I can do something by training individuals. And so we've had, over the last many years, people from all over the world living in our home, uh, businessmen, uh, sons of politicians in other countries, and um, our goal was to disciple them, send them back to their countries, and... Um, give them meaty stuff on biblical economics, biblical politics, biblical uh, running of a business, uh, anything that they're just part of our household, so they see the Bible relating to absolutely every area of life. And uh, we've also been recently uh, bringing some interns in um, who are Christians. The others were not. They were students, exchange students that we had. These interns are people who are wanting to go into either ministry or leadership in business or something like that. So again, we're investing in their lives and doing everything that we can to equip them with a worldview. But on a rubber-meets-the-road um, methodology where they're hanging around us and doing the stuff that we're doing, but I'm teaching them as we go, much like Christ did. I'm not much into seminaries. Uh, in fact, I think seminaries are probably one of the worst ways to prepare a pastor. Um, we do seminary, but it's distance education because we train them just as much in terms of their practical worldview lived out on a rubber-meets-the-road uh, level uh, right in our church. 
In fact, we we pr- pretty much go through 35 areas of life. I've got I start off with about 600 diagnostic questions, and we keep working people through and trying to get them to be Navy SEALs by the time they're finished with their uh, their internship. Pastor Kaiser, who would you say has influenced you aside from Christ Himself in the School of Discipleship? Who has been formative in your development in your of your model and of your worldview? Well, um, in terms of worldview, uh, R.J. Rushduni was hugely influential, as was um, uh, Dr. Bonson. Uh, his Theonomy and Christian Ethics. Uh, I have to say that I got converted to Theonomy reading his book to crit- crit- critique it. <laughs> And about a third of the way into the book, I was thoroughly converted, and about halfway through, I read a footnote that converted me to postmillennialism. But uh, uh, those two have had a huge impact, as has uh, Gary North. Uh, in terms of practical uh, transference of my life into the life of other people, my dad was a huge influence in my life, even though he was not Reformed. Um, and there was a guy by the name of Malcolm Weber uh, out of Australia, and he kind of systematized some of my leadership training that that we do in India and China and here in America as well. Well, Bojadar's had a lot to say about missions and mission misfire. Uh, Sudanese, Sudan Inland Mission, was that uh, C.T. Studd's uh, outfit? Uh, Bingham. Uh, C.T. Studd was uh, another, uh, another mission. Uh, the one in Ethiopia... Um, and they actually changed it from Sudan Interior Mission to SIM International because the uh, Ethiopians didn't like the term Sudan too well. <laughs> so it was a different mission organization, but uh, uh, not that many Reformed people in it. There were some. How did you come to be here in Omaha and start this work here, or did you start it? I started this one. Uh, I had been the senior pastor of the previous church, Trinity Presbyterian Church, and I was doing church planting into areas around uh, the city and even an hour and a half north up in Iowa. And then I asked if I could do the this last church plant, which is where I'm at right now. And uh, from the ground up, we started this church by saying, we're not going to do anything that we cannot explicitly justify from the scripture. And uh, uh, really... A lot of people who hold to the regulative principle of worship really are regulated more by tradition than they are by Scripture. And uh, so we've we've started from the ground up and wanted this to be just a hardcore uh, church that was unapologetic about anything, and thus the name Dominion Covenant Church. A lot of people would say, man, don't be so upfront about your worldview, but we're upfront about everything. Uh, are you affiliated with any denominations? We are with the Covenant Presbyterian Church. It's a, a denomination of about uh, a dozen um, Presbyterian churches. R.C. Sproul Jr. is yes. part of a work in Florida, in Sanford, I believe. Right, right. Uh, what would you say if people were to, um, since you want to adhere to the regulative principle of worship, what are some distinctives that people would note if they were to visit your congregation? Well, unlike most uh, regulated principle of worship uh, uh, people, we uh, have no problems with raising our hands, with uh, pretty aggressive uh, worship that we're engaged in. Um, Bible says anoint them with oil and pray over them. We don't have a problem doing that. 
So if the Bible calls for it, we do it. We're not regulated by tradition so much as we are by uh, by uh, Scripture, even though the Reformed tradition, generally speaking, is fairly solid. So you mean you really believe it when he says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind, everything. <laughs> You're supposed to be all in, huh? Well, even our bodies are supposed to be involved in, in worship. Too many people say, you know, you shouldn't kneel in worship because Roman Catholics do it. You shouldn't raise your hands because Charismatics do it. And I'm thinking... Uh, so you got a, a regulative principle of avoiding what you don't like, not a regulative principle of worship uh, guided by the Scripture. So, no, we, we've got a pretty aggressive, dynamic uh, worship service, and um, uh, it's, you know, it's a liturgical in some senses that we have responsive readings, We've got uh, basically three sermons. It's a long service. Um, uh, we have an introduction that's just like a, a mini teaching. And then we have uh, uh, some teaching before the communion. We have weekly communion. And then we have a um, 45-minute to an hour and 15-minute sermon, depending on how long it takes. So it's not a Lord, it's a Lord's day, not a Lord's hour. Oh, yeah. And then we have, we have uh, food together every Sunday afterwards and fellowship for the rest of the afternoon it, it, it's really a great time where we're investing in each other's lives and have each other's backs and care for each other it's a great body tell me more about what goes on in the kaiser household well uh right now it is incredibly busy so mondays i'm doing mondays and tuesdays one-on-one -on -one, uh, mentoring of each of the uh, five interns and then uh, they have their own studies and assignments that they're working uh, with me, sometimes with debate. I'll give them a paper to do, then I will take an adversarial position, debate with them, then we'll back up and say, okay, that was pretty good, but if you, you took a wrong detour down this way, if you had done this, you would have been a lot stronger. So I'm trying to get them uh, strengthened in their apologetics, their ability to really apply the Scripture in practical ways to uh, subjects. So I'm constantly assigning new difficult subjects that a lot of people don't think about. How does the Bible apply to this? Then in the afternoons they um, are working for the uh, church and Biblical Blueprints. I'm the president of uh, an organization called Biblical Blueprints that uh, is a missions organization. It's a, a mentoring organization. I've mentored a lot of uh, pastors who've had either failing churches or they're doing church planting. And so helping them to troubleshoot and think through some of the leadership uh, issues that that uh, are maybe lacking in their ministry. And uh, so they're working for one of those two organizations. And um, then we repeat the day, Monday through Friday. And uh, uh, I take the afternoon while they're working to do my work, um, writing, preparing sermons, um, now these counseling. young men, these young men, are they are they single men? Yes, uh, yeah. and they live in the home. Live in the home. Do they pay rent? Do they have outside jobs? Well, we have done actually paid internships in the past, but uh, I I've run out of money doing something like that. So what we've done is I'm investing in them, um, pretty much twenty hours a week. They're investing in our ministries about twenty hours a week. And so it's a win-win situation where they uh, are not getting paid, but they get free uh, room and board. I see. And the intent, the purpose, uh, when they are um, 
when they've completed, oh, I guess they never really complete it, but when they're when they're done with your phase and they're ready to leave the nest, so to speak, what is their what is their goal? Well, it depends on uh, you know their their calling. There are some who are going on to um, uh, ministry in their churches, and some who are just going to uh, use some of these principles in their business. Um, some want to go into politics. So it really depends on... Uh, we do leadership training across the board, and worldview training. It's not just for pastoral interns. Uh, some who have been pastoral interns continue on with the church and um, you know, sometimes get hired, hired on as full-time people. I've got one that's going to be starting uh, 20 hours a week anyway uh, as a paid intern in June. Now, is there any sort of a, this might be a dirty word, is there any sort of accreditation or do you all not worry about that? You work in close harmony with other fellowships. Uh, are you finding that that's, we talked about that earlier about the, our view of the seminary culture and, and what do we do with it? Is it useful? Is it biblical? Uh, is it more of a hindrance than it is a help to the extension of the kingdom. Uh, speak to that a little bit, and what what sort of are there any roadblocks that these gentlemen uh, encounter because they have gone through an asymmetrical form of training? Right. Well, in terms of uh, you know, if they're going to the OPC or PCA or some other denomination like that, uh, we we've taken them through seminaries, and there are at least uh, four seminaries out there that will give you a degree. Uh, they're not accredited, but uh, they give you a fine education. And so that's half of the training. I'm giving kind of the practical other half. They talk about practical theology and seminary. That's not really very practical. Um, it, it, it really doesn't deal with uh, some of the issues. Now, this, this may make you a bit nervous. How do you deal with the demonic uh, that's going on in people's lives. Uh, I'm a very strong believer that if we are not fighting that enemy, we're uh, going to not be winning the battles as we ought to win them. A lot of people are very good at fighting their flesh, fighting worldview. They, have, they don't have a clue about fighting the demonic. And so that's a competency that we, that we teach them. But there's five C's, really, of, um, of a goal of mature leadership, grounding people in Christ, and making sure that everything they do, they're doing in dependence upon Christ and His power. Um, <coughs> training them within community, and there's several different communities. There's family, there's, uh, there's church, uh, there's even the world as a community. I mean, some people learn good things when they're getting uh, accosted by, you know, homosexuals when you're picketing. And uh, seeing how you relate to that and... So there's various uh, communities in which training occurs, and then there's character issues, which is where a lot of people in leadership fail. And uh, it's in the pressure situations of real life that character issues arise. And then you can deal with them and say, you know, I've noticed that you're always fearful in this situation, or you get angry in this kind of situation, and that's an okay thing that has come to the surface. I, I can give you the step-by-step -step process that the Bible gives for licking that uh, that um, uh, issue. And then calling would be the fourth and then competencies. Now, seminaries do a, a fairly decent job in t teaching you about half of the competencies that you ought to learn. You know, preaching and studying and hermeneutics, all that kind of stuff. 
But uh, there's a lot of other practical competencies that uh, people need to learn as well. Um, how much opportunity do they do you insist upon uh, as far as their in interaction with the world, whether it be in um, uh, abolition, uh, abortion mill ministries, preaching, uh, how much training do they get in evangelism? Uh, are these men then in turn being encouraged in, in mentoring and discipling younger men? Yes, yeah. And, and if they're in a pastoral track, um, we try to involve them in absolutely everything that I'm involved in. Um, counseling, you do have to be careful there, but if people don't have a problem with uh, a mature intern being in on the session... Uh, they're getting experience there. They're getting experience in the session. They're getting experience uh, at the pro-life um, uh, rally or uh, praying imprecatory prayers at the abortion clinic. Um, so we just involve them with us, just like Jesus did. Jesus did have lectures, yeah, and we have we have lectures and things like that. But he had people actually watching him do stuff, then having them do it giving feedback, sending them out to do it. They report back on their failures. Failures are a great way of learning, actually. And then they take people with them to, to, to train others. And so the longer they're with us, the more opportunities I give them for training others. In terms of the outreach of the church and uh, um, taking dominion of your neighborhood and your city, who, where have you found the most fertile fields uh, are uh, far either converts and our new families joining uh, your local congregation? Well, a lot of our people are first-generation uh, first generation Christians, and I have found them to be easier to work with, actually, than people who come from, uh, you know, a traditional background, and they've got a lot of baggage to unlearn and they're not used to thinking about theonomy or any of these other things. When you're fairly new to the Christian faith, you just, if you see it in the Bible, you just suck it up, you take it, you run with it. And uh, you've never been trained uh, to be a passive Christian. I think seminaries actually train people to be passive because you don't have time to go out there and put into practice the things that you're learning. So it's just a head dump. And over a period of time when you're not really getting out there on the streets and trying to actually do things, you get accustomed to getting information and doing nothing about it and becomes a sterile kind of uh, theology. Actually, theology itself many times is uh, sterile. When I'm teaching, when I'm teaching systematic theology like uh, the Trinity, I'm showing from the scriptures that have been taken out of a very practical context and put into a sterile book, I'm teaching them why was it that Jesus taught you about this intertrinitarian relationship because of the selfishness that these people had or because of a faulty leadership and saying that's not the way that the Father and the Son relate to each other. And uh, so the, the, the doctrine of the Trinity is one that should be a transformational doctrine that helps uh, people to understand how husbands and wives ought to relate to each other and how to delegate uh, leadership to others. Almost every doctrine that's out there has profoundly life-transforming implications, but systematic theologies take it out of the practical context and just turn it into a doctrine. Okay, let's do a little test here. Okay. Um, I have always wondered, in fact, why there was a, 
special category called practical theology. It seemed to me that it all ought to be practical. Why don't you give me a practical explanation of the relevance of the terms the one and the many? Okay, well, um, the Trinity is one God in three persons, and there is an equal ultimacy of the one and the many, is what Rush Dooney talks about in, in, uh, within the Godhead. And uh, he pointed out in his book, The uh, Foundations of Social Order, that if you err on the side of the one, as Arianism did, automatically you're going to tend to be authoritarian, centralist, and fail to have some of the freedom. In fact, Bojadar wrote a, a fabulous book, uh, I mean a fabulous article on how even the little phrase, the filioque clause, are you familiar with that? Yes. And the Son, the Spirit proceeds from the Father and the Son. That has profound implications on even society. People don't realize it, but... Um, I spent a lot of time out in India, and I, I know I'm rambling a little bit here, but I'll, I'll just give you a few sample examples, but I do recommend Rush Dooney's book and Bojadar's article. I have the book in my truck, by the way. Okay, Bojadar, Bojadar says it's one of the most unique books ever written. Oh, I just love that book. Uh, that that was very transformational. Maybe on the life. second reading. It was, <laughs> it was a slog for me, but then I'm just a truck driver. <laughs> yeah, I thought it was absolutely fantastic. But when I, when I was in India... You know, I'd ask uh, some of these even uh, leaders, I mainly worked amongst the Dalits, but I'd ask some of the leaders, you know, what their conception of love was. And their conception of love is affected by the fact that they are polytheists and uh, the gods are always vying and competing with each other for your attention, for your loyalty and it affects your love. Uh, the Muslims, on the other hand, in the same country, uh, they were Unitarian, radical Unitarians. And so if God loved anybody, and that's really kind of a foreign concept, but if God loved anybody prior to uh, there being a world or angels or any humans to love, who would it be? Well, he'd be only able to love himself. But in the Trinity, it's always an outgoing love. The Father loves the Son and the Spirit, and the Spirit loves the Father and the Son. In fact, the attribute of aseity, which is a very foundational attribute, means that it's impossible for God to need anything. It's impossible, therefore, for Him to be selfish. He just overflows. He's constantly giving. He says everything that the Father has is given to the Son, and the Son gives everything to the Spirit. The Spirit honors the Father, and the Father honors the Son, and says, this is my beloved Son, hear Him. And so it's never selfish. Uh, people think God is the most self-consumed being in the world. You know, what a selfish God, always wanting to be worshipped. What's going on, really, is that the Father delights in the Son and the Spirit, and points to them. The Son is constantly desiring us to worship the Father, and adore Him, even as He adores and glorifies the Father. And who does the Spirit point to? He points to Christ. He points to the Father. So it's a completely dis different concept of, of love that uh, uh, affects the families. I remember, as a young Christian, reading uh, Pink's The Sovereignty of uh, the uh, Attributes of God, in the first chapter dealing with the solitariness of God, 
not that God is 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 one and not a trinity, but the fact that God was self-contained and completely delighted in the fellowship within the Godhead Amen. from all eternity past. Amen. And 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 then when, as I began to be uh, begin to taste and see and understand a little bit more of the Reformed faith and the the theocentric nature of it, just the idea of the pactum salutis, the idea that before the world began, the members of the Godhead delighted to come up with the the most perfect of all the possibilities in the infinite mind of God, mm. the most perfect way to glorify the Godhead yes. and all the members of the Godhead. Yes. And it, it, it really is. That's a, it, that's a fascinating consideration. That's, uh, you know... Um, so I, I, I get a little bit of that, and I'll, I'll have to go back and read it. Some parts of that book were easier than others, by the way. <laughs> uh, but I just tell myself it's church history, and then I eat it up. Um, how much does um, physical work and exercise and what we consider as not being cerebral or scholastic activities, but just doing the dishes or helping mm-hmm. around the house, how much does that feature in your mentoring and training in these building of men? Right. Well, all of us, uh, I think, should be willing to wash each other's feet, to serve one another. Um, And there are various ways in which um, uh, the tasks that are given to people, even there, can reinforce biblical attributes of humility, love, service, uh, you know, agape love, that self-sacrificing love. So yeah, um, daily service being a part of internship, I think is, is really important again. So it's not just a a head trip. It's not just academic. Some of these people, they love the academic stuff that I give. Uh, one of them was commenting this past week that it's like a fire hose, but, um, they're always trying to put these things into practice. And some of the assignments I'm giving them are helping them to do what I have just shown them can be done um, so that it's not always a dependence upon me. I'm always trying to get them away from me and them depending upon the Holy Spirit to guide them in digging into the Scriptures and applying the Scriptures in life. So service is a part of that. I serve, you know, stacking chairs, doing whatever needs to be done. Um, And anybody who's uh, too important to uh, do service like that or wash the dishes for his wife or vacuum the floor uh, is probably too important to be useful for Christ. I was raised up in a navigator environment in the Navy, and it used to be a fight to see who'd get to wash the dishes. <laughs> you know, he who's first among you would be the servant of all. Right, right. right. Um, a couple of the questions that we have posed and were the initial impetus for um, this podcast. Mm-hmm. Helping Christians to begin to think uh, about tough uh, tough questions and, and obstacles that we face. Uh, obviously, the, the, the church in, 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 in this land, the body of Christ in this land, is, is uh, struggling, it seems. Mm. And uh, it, it, it's like we are uh, boxed in and our culture and the state and education and media have all grown into the church 
and it's like we're caught up in vines and we have to figure out how to cut ourselves out. Right. right. Uh, if you, uh, you began to, uh, you asked, you, we mentioned a few of these, how can the church, uh, really begin to, uh, instruct the state? Uh, it doesn't see itself as even having a role. Uh, and the other thing is, um, how, what are your, what are your thoughts on how the church can once again, uh, recover its role as a culture transforming force to be reckoned with right, and not right. merely a voting block to be manipulated. Right. Could you speak to those? Uh, wow. Big, big subject. I, I think, uh, you know, number one, uh, the church has in many cases entangled itself deliberately with the state by asking for 501c3 status, by getting incorporated, by, um, uh, following what the IRS says you may and may not preach on. And if, you mean you don't have a gold-fringed U.S. <laughs> flag in your sanctuary? No, sir. <laughs> in fact, uh, one of the previous churches that I preached in, that was the first thing I said had to go. <laughs> they had a Christian flag, flag on one side and a, a United States flag on the other. I call no. it a corporate logo. <laughs> <laughs> So, you know, we, we need to make sure that we're not entangling our, ourselves with the state because it really does uh, cripple the church. D. James Kennedy spoke to this uh, many years ago. He said that um, when you've applied for 501c3 status, you've applied for permission to operate within IRS rules and regulations for nonprofits. He said the church does not need to ask permission of the state. And we had that discussion with Moorcraft, and of course he's fought many of those battles as well. Uh, is your congregation, I don't know how large you are, do you all seek intentionally to inject yourself into the public arena? Oh yeah, I'm constantly down at, well I shouldn't say constantly, I don't have the time to drive an hour uh, constantly, but... Uh, frequently, I've gone down to the legislature and I testify there for bills, especially when they're trying to bring in these homosexual bills. It's one of the reasons why we've gotten picketed so much uh, by the homosexuals. But um, uh, I, I think we need to be involved uh, as salt and light or Christ promises that he's going to cast us out and have us trampled underfoot of men. Why? Because we're not fit for anything but trampling underfoot of men. That means humanism is going to dominate. The reason humanism is dominating in America is the church's fault. It's not because the humanism is so powerful. It is an idolatrous system that could fall of its own weight if the church would wake up and start really taking hold of uh, the biblical principles that uh, should guide our behavior, which means preaching the to the every area of life, the whole council to the whole of life. So I preach on what's wrong with our military and how it's deviated from actually constitutional as well as biblical standards. And um, uh, this past Sunday, I was dealing with uh, the whole situation of the four horsemen of the apocalypse. Well, that fourth horseman uh, deals with uh, the whole issue of inflation, you know, debasement of the currency that Rush Dooney spoke to. And um, uh, the first horseman dealt with imperialistic expansionism. You know, a lot of Republican Christians 
are all for us being involved in every country or all over the world and we need to look at what the scripture says about these things and the scripture describes that as a demonic stronghold not as something that we should honor as a good thing yeah that's so you got to preach on everything you know we oftentimes refer to that in com- in common parlance as being out of the matrix mm. in other words yeah. you don't subscribe to the mantra my country right or wrong right, uh, right. i'm a veteran uh I was yeah. in the Persian Gulf before most um, people knew where it was back mm-hmm. in the late 70s. Mm-hmm. And oh, come yeah. to each other's aid, you know, if um, yeah, the all, deacons, all our fears come to pass. Deacons just wrote up, actually, uh, a preparation for various types of emergencies, from immediate to long-term uh, emergencies that come up, and recommending what, you know, members should do in terms of getting out of debt and savings and and food and and how do you prepare for crisis situations uh we can't predict whether they will for sure uh come or not come or what kind will come god's very creative in the kind of judgments that he brings and what i like to tell people is we're not waiting for judgment judgment has been in america for a long time um when you consider all of the different kinds of creative judgments god brings uh, statism is a form of judgment and we are about as statist as you could get. The government's involved in everything. They got their nose <coughs> involved in your cell phone, even that looks like. <clears throat> Without question, you know I've often said that the uh, the motivation behind being prepared should not be fear, but it's dominion. Yes, amen. In other words, amen. if if by the grace of God we survive whatever uh, the future holds, then we have to be prepared to build anew on the ashes right right and that takes a plan and if we're scrambling to survive then we won't be in a place to minister and to take dominion you know what uh there was a a book by henry chadwick on the early church and one of the statements in that book that really stuck with me was that he said that the church in the first three centuries grew just phenomenally and he felt that one of the most significant from a horizontal man perspective one of the most significant reasons for their uh, success was mercy ministries uh, and uh, you know ministering to people during earthquakes and plagues and things like that but the, the, they were united they were prepared they had each other's backs and it just blew the pagans away and it attracted them to the gospels what Romans talks about being jealous of the gospel you know what's really interesting is that uh, you know, we see groups like the Latter-day Saints and they've got these elaborate uh, plans for uh, being at the rising to the top in the event of calamity, right? And uh, and right. yet the, the 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 Church of Jesus Christ has basically been waiting at the bus stop for the rapture bus. Yeah, well, part of it's that they don't really have a biblical economics either. Uh, a lot of Christians uh, don't understand. Uh, how to even articulate some of the free market principles uh, that are laid out in the scripture, uh, let alone having read anything hard. Um, I think Austrian economics, personally, is about as close you, as you can get to biblical economics. I love Gary North's books, and and uh, uh, there's a number of other Reconstructionists who have written well on economics. Actually, my favorite one is David Chilton's Productive Christians in an Age of Guilt Manipulators. I love that book. I want to, before we wrap up, and I'm sure we could we could talk uh, for a lot, and, uh, and hopefully we'll have other opportunities to visit. Uh, but I did want to know more about your 
literature ministry. Uh, you 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 told me just a little bit about it in our in our phone call, and I was fascinated by it. And uh, would you go into that a little bit about what you're doing, and then also uh, tell us how we can uh, become engaged, how we can support, how we can make avail, how we can make use of the tools that you have already amassed. Well, um, my goal on Biblical Blueprints website is to get, uh, oh, probably around a thousand booklets up there that are 60 pages or less that address discrete areas of life very uh, succinctly yet adequately. Um, and not just my own writings, but the writings of other people who are willing to let these be downloaded for free all over the world. And then I've got another uh, website called kaisercommentary.com. It's not quite up yet, but that's where I just want to put everything that I've written and people can access it. So uh, I don't know if I have another 40 years. That'd be great. Uh, or if the Lord's going to take me tomorrow. But I want to get some of this stuff available so that um, uh, people can utilize it. And it, it's been a blessing and Oh, wow, probably over 30 different countries uh, where people have been downloading using this stuff. They can print it. Uh, they don't need to ask my permission. Um, this is kind of a Creative Commons kind of a project. Are these, would you consider these as like primers? These would be, these would be primers. I mean, some of them are really in-depth. Um, uh, like, then I have to divide it up into two or three volumes. But like my book on Canon... Um, I've crammed it. It's kind of small uh, print, but I've crammed into 60 pages just hundreds and hundreds of scriptures that show all of the self-referential statements of how God was developing his canon, how you know what books are in the canon. So it's a presuppositional defense of canonicity. Uh, the Reformers talked about it, maybe gave one or two scriptures, but this is the first one that's really delved into this subject in that kind of depth. So uh, primer is a relative term. It's probably more comprehensive than any other book on what are the presuppositional statements. And then the subsequent volumes will deal with other aspects of canon. But uh, some of them are very, very simple, um, just designed to encourage uh, lay people. In fact, that's who I mostly write to is, is uh, the average lay person rather than to the academic. Now, are these uh, in PDF file? or PDFs. Okay. Correct. Now, are, can they be ordered? Uh, do you self-publish at all? Uh, they can. I prefer people order them because it's a big hassle to print, but if people ask for uh, printing, we send them out basically at the cost of uh, postage and, and printing. And as you indicated before, these are on a broad range of topics. Right. They have to do with a, building a biblical worldview. Yeah, they cover even political things like uh, uh, I've got one that's uh, constitutional constraints to biblical uh, to government theft uh, and it, it, it pulls the Bible in. That one was a little bit softer. It was actually one of my speeches that I gave at a presidential um, uh, uh, gathering. There was a, a friend of ours that said, hey, we'll bring out a thousand people and you can speak if you allow Phil Kaiser to speak for half an hour at the beginning. So I gave uh, three of those and uh, tried to address, um, you know, political issues uh, that are really current issues. So, yeah, there's politics, 
there's family life I've got uh, a booklet uh, that gives a whole bunch of diagnostic questions for helping parents to see are my sons ready to get married are they ready for leadership and I got one for daughters that just goes through a whole bunch of diagnostic questions covering a wide range of life. So homeschooling parents would do well to visit your site. Oh, yeah. There's a ton of stuff there for homeschoolers. And give us that website again. It's biblicalblueprints.org. Biblicalblueprints.org. No spaces or gaps. Correct. Uh, you also mentioned axioms. Oh, axioms. Yes, I... I love the axioms of Scripture. Uh, every discipline starts with axioms, mathematics, and you can't prove the axioms. Uh, and this is part of presuppositionalism. But here's the thing. Every axiom is a universal. This always happens. This never happens. And you can never state any kind of a universal, even if it's not an axiom. Like, no two snowflakes are alike. You've probably heard scientists say that. Well, that's a ridiculous statement. You'd have to be God to make that statement. Uh, you'd have to examine every snowflake that's ever fallen, ever will fall on this planet or every other planet. And, uh, and yet, every discipline starts with universals. And the person who's teaching in a secular university can't even get past base one because he's not omniscient. How do you know those universals? And he'll say, well, how do you know those universals? Well, I know them because the, the God who knows all things has revealed them in the Bible. So I go through the, the, the foundations for music in the Bible. Those are in the Hebrew diacritical marks. Uh, the, the axioms for mathematics, um, you know, commutative law of uh, addition, any of the axioms that are out there, you can find them just using normal exegesis in the Bible. Axioms for linguistics, for science, for all of these different areas of life. And that's something I'm passionate about. It's one of the things I debate on university campuses and um, work with medical students, uh, primarily in medical ethics. But uh, uh, that's one of the reasons why one of my email addresses is uh, phil at greataxioms.com. I love the axioms of Scripture. Is there a website? Or is that is that there in one of, is that in one of your uh, your papers or books on your? Uh... Eventually, we're going to get to doing that. I just actually set it up. I don't have anything on the greataxioms dot uh, com. I, I can imagine that that even a lot of believers think, well, certainly the Bible could give me spiritual axioms, you know, about the nature of God or what God cannot do, like lie or in Him there is no darkness. But I think they might find it to be a bit of a, an eye-opener to consider that mathematics and musical arrangements all have their origins. The principles upon which they're based have their origins in Scripture and by, and by extension in the character and nature of God. Right. Wycliffe talked about that. He said all truth is in Scripture. He didn't mean that the, the Bible is a, a textbook on nuclear physics. He meant that the, the presuppositional axioms for every discipline of life is in the Bible. And using logical extrapolation, you can go through, build a system, and then go out and do your research in the world. So it gives us a huge um, edge up on the secular world, if we would use it. But what Christians do is they go to the world for uh, their views on origins and science and sociology and anthropology and counseling they don't go to the bible 
the Bible is all that we need uh, as a foundation anyway for doing our research in the world. And it's just really sad to me to see how much of the wisdom of the world that the church has embraced. Well, it's, 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 when you really think about it, there's a lot packed into that verse where that in Christ are hidden all the riches Amen. of knowledge. Yeah. Um, you know, one of the things it occurred to me recently, what was so fascinating, sometimes it's easy to become inundated by just the sheer uh, never-ending stream of new technology. What's really amazing is when you consider that all of this technology had its origin in eternity past in the mind yeah. of God. Yeah, amen. You know, Jesus in Matthew 4, 4 said, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. And people say, yeah, but what about the ceremonial laws? Well, even though they're not binding, you can live by them. The ceremonial laws give us so much wisdom. In fact, Sir Isaac Newton, he loved looking through all of the temple measurements for getting the axioms of geometry. <laughs> I mean, there's so much in the Bible that we're not living by because we compartmentalize it. We say, oh, Leviticus, that's not useful for us. Well, I thought it was fascinating uh, when we began to f first follow the Ark Encounter mm -hmm. and uh, the idea, you know, the typical child storybook version of the Ark uh, looked more like a, a bubble or a toy. And then when you see that the actual dimensions, when they're built, it looks more like a modern super tanker. <laughs> and uh, that the that it the is. finest marine engineers confirm yeah. that the dimensions are spot on yeah, for fantastic. maximum stability. Absolutely fantastic. Well, it's yeah. been a pleasure talking with you again. Tell us uh, uh, your um, your prayer requests, if you would. Uh, how and, and part of our reason for uh, giving uh, you a chance to introduce yourself to the audience, which we hope will continue to grow. Uh, but we want to put flesh on the name. And are, now, are, is your your church has a website? Yep, and all my sermons are on that website, dominioncovenantchurch.com. Okay. And uh, yeah, there's a, a ton of sermons. I'm going through the Book of Revelation right now. Uh, been through First and Second Samuel. You'll see almost every imaginable subject in First and Second Samuel. A lot of political issues, but all kinds of subjects on there. Um, so yeah, any of our series, uh, are, are on that website. And as far as prayer requests, if the Lord would, uh, help me to be even better at, uh, time management to get uh, more writing done. I'm on, uh, writing week this week, next week, and the following. Uh, but I still have church things that I got to do and interns and, and whatnot. You have your own list of axioms like Jonathan Edwards? <laughs> yeah. Got to get going on those. <laughs> well, we're going to let you get going, and I appreciate your graciously agreeing to meet me. Thank you for joining us in the War Room. Please enjoy The Nation's Rage, Psalm 2, by my soul among lions. Why do the nations rage? Why do the people's thought in vain? Seeking to rid themselves of Christ's dominion. A theme that's true in any age Oh, tell me why